You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. China has watched Russia's war with Ukraine and has offered both weapons and a plan to end the war. Recently, the Moscow Credit Union announced it's issued a blockchain-based digital bank guarantee pegged to the Chinese yuan. Many reports have suggested that China is watching Russia's efforts to take Ukraine as a litmus test, a lesson for it on how the world might react if it invaded Taiwan. Now, way back in 1979, we established some rules with respect to China, and one of them was memorialized in something called the Taiwan Relations Act, which was part of a constellation of documents and statements and laws that had an ultimate effect on our relationship with Taiwan. Now, while it was called the Taiwan Relations Act, it could easily have been called the Balancing Act. What did that act include and why is it relevant at this exact moment in U.S.-China relations? Our guest tonight is Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, which is a think tank here in Washington. He's the former director at the Conference Board's China Center for Economics and Business in Beijing. He is the author of China's New Red Guards, The Return of Radicalism and the Rebirth of Mao Zedong, which was published by Oxford University Press back in 2019, and portions of it could be deemed prescient. So we're really glad to have him tonight. Jude, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, let's get right to us. Tell us a little bit about the background of Taiwan, why it matters to China, and why it matters to the United States. This is a really important issue for both China and the United States. China-Taiwan relations have been longstanding and complex, going back centuries and centuries, which makes sense given that Taiwan is located just 100 miles or so from what we would call now the mainland China. And China has always seen Taiwan, again, this island off of its coast, and an important maritime choke point as being a security and economic interest for a very long time. The Qing dynasty took control of what we would call Taiwan, but had to cede it to the Japanese at the conclusion of the Sino-Japanese War, which ended in 1895. The Japanese then had control of it until they lost World War II, at which point it became the Republic of China. So in 1949, Obviously, at the end of what we call the Chinese Civil War, the Republic of China, which was under the Kuomintang, flees to Taiwan and takes control there. And the Communist Party of China takes control of the mainland China. And since 1949, there has been that now near permanent cleavage. What's interesting is, at least for the first decade or so after 1949, it was the KMT, the plucky KMT on the island of Taiwan, who were planning to invade the mainland China and take back all of mainland China, because in their view, they were the rightful governing authority over all of China, including the mainland. The United States has been a key element of this very complicated situation since before 1949. But just again, for the the sake of attention spans here, it's just to say that after this cleavage, which occurred in 1949, the United States has been on this very long balancing act. It didn't just start the Taiwan Relations Act. We have consistently been trying to initially deter Chiang Kai-shek, the leader on Taiwan, from launching an invasion into China. We've also been there to try to dissuade Mao Zedong from taking even more aggressive actions towards Taiwan. Taiwan is vitally important for a number of reasons. One is its strategic position. Again, it's just 100 miles off of mainland China. 
Taiwan is at the lower end of what we call the first island chain, which is an invisible strategic perimeter, which stems all the way down from Japan through Taiwan. And it is seen as a sort of a security cordon. You often hear defense planners talk about inside the first island chain and outside the first island chain. It refers to essentially what we would call almost a maritime border. Once you get past the first island chain, the sea really opens up into blue water. So it plays this critical position as a security choke point. And as I'm sure we'll talk about later as well, the value of Taiwan has grown as its own democracy has strengthened. And then finally, Taiwan has become a very important technology partner with the United States. I'm sure somewhere where we're recording, we have semiconductors all over the devices right now. And many of the high-end ones are not designed, but produced at a very special firm called TSMC in Taiwan. So I didn't do justice to the complexity of this history, but just to say it's long, complicated, and and multi-domain. You know, we can deal with long and complicated here at NSLT. I just want to tell you, and our listeners have a very long attention span. They are not dopamine addicts who are clicking on TikTok videos, or maybe they are. I'm not sure. But let's go on and let's talk about this document. What was the zeitgeist, if you will, in 1979 when the Taiwan Act passed? There were other documents, other things that sort of were attendant to that. What did it say and uh, what do you think prompted that legislation? Obviously, we have this famous trip by Richard Nixon to China in, in 1972, which begins this process, which then reaches a completion in 1979, where we go from recognition of Taiwan, and indeed previously we had a defense treaty, to normalization of our relations with the People's Republic of China after decades of hostility. And remember, we, we fought the Chinese in the Korean War in 1950. Mao Zedong's son died in the Korean War in 1950. There's deep, intense hostilities Nixon began to chip away at that in 72. And then under President Carter, we saw the normalization of relations. The price for that, though, and this was part of the secret trips that Kissinger had made to China and was the very first and most important issue that the Chinese brought up was the issue of Taiwan. The issue of Taiwan is vitally central for the Communist Party of China. Any negotiation the United States, any talk the United States have with China, Taiwan is always at the center of this. So again, it was the first issue they brought up with Kissinger, and they basically said, look, we would love to normalize, but here's what we need to do. You need to disrecognize the Taiwans. You need to break off diplomatic relations, and that's going to be the price. We did that, and out of some frustration from Congress at not being sufficiently advised or as a part of that process, there was what became the Taiwan Relations Act. Interestingly, the Carter administration had its own version of this legislation that Congress took a look at and said, no, thank you. This isn't sufficiently strong in our guarantees to our our friends in Taipei. So they wrote this new legislation. It's relatively short. It's also, I think, been the linchpin of our broad approach to Taiwan. It both recognizes that we have no formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan, but it says we're going to have very vigorous non-diplomatic or unofficial relations with them, cultural, economic. And I think for the purposes of the larger discussion and, and a lot of our tensions today, it makes a few key statements very clearly. Number one, it says to Beijing that the future of Taiwan must be decided by peaceful means. In other words, whatever happens ultimately as a political resolution between Taipei and Beijing, it cannot happen through the use of force. And and if you use the use of force, we will see this in the United States as, quote, a grave threat for peace and stability, right? Number two, it says we're going to provide arms to Taiwan. 
but it says we're going to provide arms of a defensive nature. So long as the United States is providing material, weapons, weapon systems, aircraft to Taiwan that help them again in this effort to deter an invasion or an attack by China, that is going to be sufficient. And then it says that the United States has to maintain the capacity to be able to resist or deter any use of force or coercion by China. It both says an invasion by China would be a grave threat to the United States, but it does not provide a security guarantee for Taiwan. It does not say like an Article 5 in NATO, if China attacks the United States will respond military. So it's not a military alliance, but it's pretty darn close. You can imagine and has been the understanding of Beijing since 1979 that really what the United States is saying is for the purpose of our normalization of relations, we're not going to say we provide a conditional security guarantee. But Beijing, we just want to make it very, very clear for you. We only see one path here, which is you have to come to a peaceful political settlement between Taipei and Beijing, we're going to help Taiwan have the capability to deter an, an invasion. When we talk about what we call our One China policy, our, our official name for this constellation of documents and understandings, we're referring to the three communiques, which were between Beijing and Washington, laying out the foundation of the relationship between the bilateral relationship. We talk about the uh, Taiwan Relations Act. We talk about the Six Assurances, which was under the Reagan administration and wasn't declassified until recently. It's usually that package of documents that we talk about we say our one China policy. Okay. And the six assurances, because it wasn't declassified until recently, can you just very quickly say what that is? Yeah. So this, the six assurances, again, came out under Reagan. 2016 is when we sort of put these out. The short version is, it says, the Chinese understanding based on one of the communiques had been that there we were going to sell arms to Taiwan, but we were going to phase those out. The six assurances were assurances to Taiwan that says, we do not agree to set any date for the termination of arms sales. It said the United States will not play any mediation role in a dispute between the Taiwans and the PRC. We will not exert any force on Taipei to enter into negotiations. So don't worry. Remember, from Taiwan's perspective, 1979 was not a good year, right? You essentially see the United States pull the rug out in normalization of relations. And the TRA is nice. But Taipei now has this permanent anxiety about does an improvement in relations between the United States and China potentially mean you're even going to back away from the TRA? As anyone who has worked the Taiwan issue knows, constantly behind the scenes, you're always having to reassure Taipei. And that reassurance is a bottomless bucket because from Taipei's perspective, they're always worried. And even to today, anytime they hear about Blinken going to China, you know, Taipei is always very nervous. So again, that's the background for this. So they're saying, look, we're not going to force you into negotiations. We will play no role in mediation. Don't worry, just because we might be improving our relationship with Beijing doesn't mean you have to worry that we're going to get in there. We, there's no change, continuing with these six assurances, there's, there's no change in our position over sovereignty issues of Taiwan. We will not seek to revise the TRA. Don't worry, that's fixed. And then the sixth one, which I forget the actual wording of, was something about one of the communiques. Here's how we, between the United States and Beijing, Here's how we, the United States, read it. And again, I forget actually what that reassurance was, but there was some passage that Taipei was worried, indicated that the United States was going to check in with Beijing on arms sales. And I think we were saying our reading of it is, don't worry, we don't check with Beijing before we sell you stuff. 
the six assurances is different from the three communiques and the TRA insofar as it's not this sort of formal document that has gone through, you know, an interagency and legal review. It was an internal document that was privately shared through AIT, the, the American Institute for Taiwan, which is our non-official sort of embassy. So it probably had a little bit more of the Reagan spin on it than something that sort of came out more formally. So 1979 was a bad year for Taiwan, but over time, and I'm not asking just in the immediate sense, but how was this received in China over, let's say, the next decade and a half? Not well, as you can imagine, partly because from Beijing's perspective, and this is where Beijing is consistently frustrated by democratic bodies like Congress, Beijing can work out this agreement with the White House, and then Congress can swoop in and do something that, from Beijing's perspective, undermines it. And it's also important to remember that from Beijing's perspective, how the United States talks about Taiwan is vitally important. So it's not just are we selling them defensive weapons. If we go around talking about Taiwan or intimating that Taiwan is a sovereign state, that's where Beijing's goat is tied. The TRA, when it came out again, was stronger than the Carter administration's legislation, which had been drafted in consultation with the State Department. So Beijing's first reaction was, uh, under then-leader Deng Xiaoping, that this actually showed that the United States was not a good faith partner on this issue of normalization of relations. It wasn't a good start from Beijing's perspective. What has really driven Beijing's anxieties, though, is you know after the passage of the TRA, it's more at the higher political level of the type and content of interactions between the United States and Taiwan. After Tiananmen Square, the United States began selling more advanced packages to Taipei that really upset Beijing. The TRA has always been a little bit of a thorn in the side, but I think it has been substantively less so than a a lot of other disturbances in the uh, sort of political atmosphere. So is there a point in time when a specific provision of the act, I mean, never mind the fact that there's some probably separation of powers issues with respect to this act in the first place, since under Article 2 of the Constitution, the authority for diplomacy and international relations really is, is, is vested in the president. But has it been used? Has any specific aspect of the act been used in a public way? The substantive components of the TRA were the establishment of the American Institute of Taiwan, the AIT, which was going to take this unique role as a non-embassy embassy. And the provisions for AIT are written out in the TRA. And, and it, you know, in this very weird world of Taiwan sort of fiction, where, again, we support Taiwan, but don't officially, the AIT, which is for all intents and purposes, an embassy, but isn't. It is staffed by all State Department officials. And as a part of the TRA legislation, there is a requirement that if the AIT enters into any sort of agreement with the government of Taipei or elsewhere, there has to be a notification via the Secretary of State to Congress that basically AIT is is getting up to something. But I think for for listeners, the main sort of two buckets are clarifying that, yes, we have a non-official relationship, but we will support Taiwan to make sure that Beijing does not invade or attack in the establishment of this non-official embassy in in AIT to essentially be the conduit for our non-official diplomatic relations with Taipei. Let's move on for um, just a second. Let's talk about what China's current goals are with respect to Taiwan. They've said so publicly, or we can divine them. And what threats to the United States are posed by China's goals? And I guess I would say, let's flip that on, on its head too, vice versa. What are our current goals with respect to China and what threats 
to China are posed by our goals. So Beijing's goals vis-a-vis Taiwan are clear. They are to bring about the final full quote reunification between Taiwan and the motherland. That has been the consistent, clear goal that is articulated in every high-level speech coming out from Xi Jinping, Hu Jintao, Jiang Zemin, Deng Xiaoping, Mao Zedong. What's interesting, though, is what's right under that goal, which is the actual sort of meaningful tactics and strategy that the government uses or the Communist Party uses. And there you've seen a mixture over the years of, of stick and carrot. In better times under the previous administration in Taipei, under Ma Yingzhou, uh, which began in 2008, who was much more, not pro-reunification, but more friendly to the idea of better relations with Beijing, there was a lot of economic carrot used by Beijing. So essentially trying to use the size of China's economy to integrate the heck out of Taipei such that everyone on the island understands, well, look, it's in our interest to reunify. And what Beijing is specifically trying to trigger is a political negotiation process between whatever the governing authority on Taipei is and Beijing. That's the proximate goal they're trying to get to, to reach this ultimate goal of reunification. In 2016, with then the election of President Tsai Ing-wen, who is still currently the president, although she'll be stepping down, she's term limited, relations then turned to almost all stick because she did not affirm, she did not say the magical incantations that Beijing wanted her her to, and I I won't bore the audience with these, but there's something called the 1992 consensus that she did not affirm. And this is where Beijing's strategy has moved very, very coercive. And this is where I think we've been following this a lot in the news recently. This is where you're seeing much more military pressure, you know, political warfare, interference in Taiwan's elections, trying to basically block Taiwan from increasing its international space. Taiwan, even under our understanding of the One China policy, does have the right to participate in international bodies where statehood is not a requirement. Beijing is doing everything it can to essentially isolate Taipei, break its will, break its confidence. Their vision of victory on that is, well, look, the carrots didn't work. So what we can do is signal to the Taiwan people that you're never going to lose us. We're bigger, we're stronger. And so unless you want to become an autarkic, isolated country that's poor, you're going to have to come embrace the motherland. That's Beijing's strategy now. The problem is the more Beijing squeezes, the more it intensifies nationalist resolve on the island, on Taipei. So it hardens sentiment that people do not want any part of this. And, you know, the people of Taipei also look at at China's more autocratic political turn under Xi Jinping, and they say, "Uh -uh, why would I ever want to fold myself into that? They saw what happened where uh, Beijing in 2019 passed the national security law in Hong Kong, abrogating the framework agreement there, which was called One Country, Two Systems, which basically said, we're going to leave Hong Kong alone for 50 years, starting in, in 1997 when, when handover from the UK happened. And so they saw that process break down and Beijing now enforce its own political systems on, on Hong Kong and erode its rule of law, judicial independence, civil society. I can say what Beijing's strategy is now. The problem is it's not working. And the more Beijing squeezes, the more it also brings in other countries like the United States, like Japan, like Australia, who who see this democracy, which is strategically valuable, but as you mentioned, has technological assets on it that are of great importance. It sees Beijing threatening this democratic island. And that is, again, building resolve. So that's Beijing's strategy, which I think of as a strategic cul-de-sac. And Beijing just has not found a way to reset its approach to begin to pursue its objectives.
On the United States part, we have a bunch of approaches. Many of these are cross-cutting, canceling each other out, and sending confusing signals. On the one hand, if you were to listen to a spokesperson from the State Department, they would tell you nothing in our policy has changed. It's the one China policy guided by the three communiques, the six assurances, the TRA, right? That's what they would say. That's not true, though. Our policy has been evolving as we've felt either that Beijing is becoming too aggressive, but also Taiwan has become much more of a salient issue here in the United States. You're seeing much more interest from members of Congress to go on congressional delegations, to go to Taiwan, to give speeches, to be seen. You've seen President Biden now on three different occasions make statements that seem to indicate that we actually have moved from a position of strategic ambiguity, where we traditionally have said, without clarity, would we or would we not intervene in a military conflict? President Biden has said now three times very clearly on very specifically worded questions, yes, we would come to Taiwan's defense. That may or may not be the right thing to do, but it is important to just admit that that is a shift in our policy. And from Beijing's cynical view, Beijing now sees our Taiwan policy not as an end in itself to essentially protect Taiwan's space prosperity, security, but that Taiwan is really a cudgel that the United States uses to go after China. So in Chinese discourse, you hear them talk about the United States, quote, playing the Taiwan card, you know, this idea that we're going to use this as a way to sort of create a problem right on China's, you know, coastline, that we're going to arm Taiwan so that way we can provoke China, that we're going to use Taiwan to draw in partners and allies like Japan, like Australia, that will leverage Taiwan threats to build security architecture like AUKUS and the Quad to surround and contain China. That's China's worldview in all of this. It's important to remember, well, to me, Beijing is ultimately the, the, quote, bad guy here because they're the one threatening to invade a vibrant democracy. I think the challenge for us is I think recognizing that fact and having that moral clarity only gets you to the two-yard line. And as we learned with the Soviet Union in the Cold War, you can know who a rival is. You can know that the Soviet Union is a bad actor, but you are left at the problem of how do you manage that, right? And for us, this is very difficult because we've got to find the right Goldilocks of reassurance to China that ultimately we have no stake in what Beijing and Taipei decide so long as it's decided peacefully, that we're, we're really here just to enforce the rules of the game. We're an umpire. Beijing doesn't think that that's true. And I I think increasingly Beijing on that might have a point. I think our political discourse here in the United States is shifting much more to not articulating it this clearly, but essentially affirming that we will never allow Taipei and Beijing to come together because we're worried it would be on, on Beijing's terms. That could be the right sentiment, but this is a very complicated, fraught issue where unfortunately, as again, we did in the, in the Cold War, you have to take into account at least the perceptions of your rival, in part because Beijing's 90 miles off the shore. It has extraordinary military capabilities and nuclear weapons. And, and we just have to be careful in how we balance reassurance for Taiwan, deterrence with Beijing. And, and it's just a very hard puzzle. Yeah, it sounds like a hard puzzle. It also does sound a bit, though, like China has a history of miscalculating things over and over again. And I wonder what sort of cultural factors, and I don't mean Chinese cultural, I mean, 
Communist Party cultural factors would make it hard to be nimble and sort of change a point of view. And I know historically that is something that they've struggled with. And you've written about this in your book, sort of a reckoning with the death of Mao. Of course, they even had issues with the reckoning with the death of Stalin and how they would spin that in China. And in terms of being nimble or presenting the view that, you know, these people committed atrocities, it's just not something that they can do. And I think likewise on these diplomatic things, any major shift seems to be really difficult in this highly bureaucratic communist party and government. It seems to be weighed down with these cultural issues. And once they lock on a narrative, it's pretty hard to pull them off. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think you're right to flag that this is not some sort of cultural bug of the Chinese people. This is really Leninist bureaucracies. And I think when you see highly institutionalized bureaucratic Leninist autocratic systems, you see many of the same pathologies. We saw this in the Soviet Union. We see this in North Korea. You do see this with personalist dictatorships of the non-Leninist variety as well. It is the problem of stultifying political culture where leaders have no tolerance for competing points of view. What's interesting is China, despite having the same political architecture consistently from about the death of Mao, which is, it happened in 1976 and with the rise of Deng Xiaoping a couple of years later, it was the case though that China had more space for tactical recalibration. And indeed, if you think about the one country, two systems framework that was put in force on Hong Kong until it was demolished by Beijing, that was actually originally a formulation that Deng Xiaoping came up with in the early 1980s as a way to find a path to reunification with Taiwan. That level of creativity would not occur from the Xi Jinping administration today, but the Communist Party was capable of that for better part of a couple of decades. And remember, this is the Communist Party that you know, overcame a lot of internal opposition to join the World Trade Organization, which was seen by many arch conservatives in the party as if that was essentially, you know, Beijing embracing global hegemonic bourgeois capitalism. Which they um, did very well, it would appear to me. Yeah, I mean, that's a, yeah, ish. But I think your point is right. Under the Xi Jinping administration, orthodoxy has become much more rigid. And I think one of the things that I notice in you know, we do a lot of track twos with folks in Beijing. And, and I noticed that over the last three or four years on issues of vital importance, China's relationship with Russia and the Ukraine war, thinking about the Taiwan issue, we're hearing the spectrum of discourse narrow and narrow and narrow, and now really just align with what the talking points coming out of Beijing are. And that's really worrying because on the Taiwan issue, the more that orthodoxy reigns, the more worried I get. I would like to see a point where Beijing starts understanding that it is in a bit of a strategic cul-de-sac and start thinking of new frameworks to essentially kick the can. But I, that's not in the Xi Jinping administration's uh, DNA, but it's ultimately, as you say, it ends up being Beijing's own goals. A, a good example of, of Beijing's sort of tactical myopia is thinking about, you've seen a lot of European countries become very frustrated with Beijing's faux neutrality on the war in Ukraine, where Beijing likes to pretend and, and state publicly that it is not a party to this conflict whatsoever. We saw this in a position paper Beijing put out more than a week ago, this much awaited position paper on the war in Ukraine, that was essentially just a recitation of Beijing's greatest hits, talking points of NATO caused this, but we hope, quote, both parties find some sort of solution you would read this position paper, have no idea that Russia invaded Ukraine. 
And Beijing, meanwhile, is seeing historic levels of bilateral trade with Russia. You know, last year, it was buying oil at the peak of the, of the market price, which is an informal subsidy to Russia. I won't say that I know one way or the other, but there are, are concerns in, in the U.S. government and the administration that Beijing is finding ways to, to support militarily. I think there's worries about ammunition that China may, may be selling. That's not confirmed, but it wouldn't surprise me. And that you know, Beijing is missing how costly that is for their relationship with Europe, which, by the way, is one of their biggest economic export markets. So Beijing thinks it's found a, a nice balancing point. But I think if you talk to friends in Europe, they don't see it as such. And in fact, they're seeing discussions in their capitals turn much more hostile to China as they've seen China essentially put its economic might behind Russia's war efforts. Interesting you should say that, because uh, with respect to the gas that they're paying for the Russian gas, obviously the sanctions have made it difficult for Russia to sell its oil to nations that observe the international sanctions, not just the United States, but the EU and individual countries as well. The oil price thing, I'm wondering if that's a balancing that China is going hoping for growth, because of course, they're in a negative growth phase of their population right now, with the birth rate being the lowest, I think, in modern history in China, and emigration with an E, that is persons leaving China at um, really an all-time acme which sounds like, uh, um, you know, maybe they are literally quite tone deaf to the fact that none of this is resonating, none of it's going to work in the long term. And they've taken a you know, relic for, for China, a relatively short view of things. And this is a country with 50 year plans. You know, I lived in China for 10 years. And I have to say, you, you, if you got close enough, you could always see the duct tape. I've never bought the idea that China's thinking in decades or centuries. It's it's one of the sort of salient features of of, of the Communist Party is that they do put out five year plans. China has and, and has always been awash in plans. A great student of the Soviet Union, where they learned about industrial planning, and as was the case in the Soviet Union, as the joke goes, you know they pretend to pay us, we pretend to work. The systems never quite work as well. So I don't see China as any more short termist now as opposed to a, a, a decade ago, I just think for China, the low-hanging fruit have all been plucked. And really, China's challenge is it's in a much more challenging strategic environment, and the low-hanging fruit of economic growth have been plucked. So I think Beijing always knew it was going to get to this point where productivity growth would get much harder. I mean, you can lay another mile of high-speed rail, but but the, the, the sort of contribution to growth is going to diminish because China's already awash in, in high-speed rail. On the demographic issue, yes, China is going through a very challenging demographic period. But here's the thing. Globally, there is a, a crescendo of graying societies across the world, including the United States last year. We announced one of our worst population growth years since 1976. So structurally, we're seeing this occur across much of Europe. Even Japan is still in, in the throes of demographics. The issue is not, are they seeing a, a constriction of their workforce and, and a graying of society? Absolutely. The question is, do they have the tools to be able to deal with that? And so anytime anyone goes very quickly from demographics are bad to China's about to collapse, I always feel like that that's someone who's looking at the liability side of the ledger without looking at the asset side. And, and if you do that, every company in the world is bankrupt. China has steps it can take if it wants to mitigate 
some of these population effects on productivity. It can't bend the curve because as we know, demographic curves are frustratingly difficult to shape. Even though China today is having trouble getting people to have second and third kids, even assuming they were, you don't start to see the contribution to workforces for you know two decades or so. But just, I won't bore people with the discussion on policies China's could take, but China could increase its mandatory retirement age, which right now is 55. So if you raise it to 65, suddenly you get a massive contribution to your workforce. China can do things like um, completely ending all the internal restriction on migration known as the hukou system. China has an internal passport that governs your ability to move to other cities. So it basically artificially constricts labor supply and mobility. Another thing China is trying to do to, to address these workforce challenges is this is one of the reasons behind Xi Jinping's focus on advanced and critical technologies. His view is, rightly or wrongly, I know I've got this productivity problem. So if I only have three workers now instead of the five I had 10 years ago, what about three workers plus automation, right? Or three workers plus AI. So I think that's their view of, we know we've got these challenges, so we're going to have to find new ways to, to sort of wring out productivity. Are they going to be successful? I don't know. But I think for anyone who does the kind of demographics equals doom, I want to see them show the math. Yeah, I, demographics doesn't always equal doom. I wonder how much this uh, recent cracking down by Xi and sort of the recent party conferences and some of the things that have been said aren't going to cause even more immigration in the sense that, first of all, they don't sound like they're going to work, but maybe I'm wrong. You're the expert. It seems like he's taken some positions which could, if China was so inclined, boomerang and harm him as a leader. I think a sad reality of dictatorship is you can do really stupid, unpopular things for a very long time and stay in power. Xi Jinping can look to his political cousins up to the Northeast, North Korea, to see a shining example of how you can run a country into the ground. Now, I'm not saying China is North Korea, but as a starting point, I think we're always looking for the sort of people power boomerang that's going to come wrestle control. And, and, and I think a sad fact is Xi Jinping is, and right now they're holding the National People's Congress in Beijing, and it's one of the moments where you get to see if Xi Jinping's power is increasing or not, because you see, is he moving his personnel into key issues? Is his policy agenda being uh, promulgated through formal documents? Xi Jinping is large and in charge. That doesn't mean what you say is not true, which is under, he may be in, in power, but are we seeing some costs accumulate to China? And I think the question is undoubtedly so, right? You're hearing from almost all of my friends in China, even the more nationalist ones, they're deeply frustrated with what's going on under Xi Jinping. Those who have the capital and the ability to, to emigrate do. Many of them can't because you have deep familial ties or you, you can't afford it. Or, or frankly, I hate to say this, the United States often makes it very hard. If you wanted to find a path to, to immigration and I'm married to a, a green card holder, it is incredibly frustrating. So I, I do think this comes at, Xi Jinping comes at a significant cost to China. We're already seeing China's global reputation diminish. We're seeing just the functional play space for Chinese companies diminish as regulators around the world, not just here in the United States, but in Australia and 
you know, Berlin come to worry that Chinese companies are proxies for the Communist Party. And we're seeing just the limited civil liberties that many Chinese people had enjoyed being, you know, curtailed at, at a really depressing rate. So all that is real. But I also think there's no signs that Xi Jinping isn't anything but firmly ensconced in power. You would like to believe that there was democracy somewhere in China, but obviously there is not. So maybe he's ensconced in power. What would force the CCP, because from my perspective, correct me if I'm wrong, they really are running the government entirely, but what would force the CCP to take a different path than the one that they appear to be on where power is being consolidated in Xi? And I know large and in charge, I understand. What could shift that if not the popular will? Xi Jinping's death. I don't mean that to be morbid, but I have to say, we, we were talking about Mao Zedong earlier, the thing that opened up space for Deng Xiaoping to come in and fundamentally change the trajectory of the country was the death of the dictator. This is why we have term limits. They provide an opportunity to course correct and change direction. I don't think this is unique to China. I mean, this is the plot of Lord of the Rings. When you get power, you wanna keep it. And that's why constraining power is so critical. Less flippantly, although I, I do think, as they say for communists, you, when you go to see Marx, in other words, when you die is the most opportune time for a course correction. The most optimistic theory of the case could be that China, if it continues to accumulate a lot of these sort of international losses, it sees its international space really begin to be you know, increasingly constrained, but more critically, domestically headwind after headwind you know, accumulates and strengthen. And the Communist Party basically understands that, look, if we want to stay in power, we're going to have to make some significant changes here. It doesn't mean we're going to get rid of the party. It doesn't mean we're going to democratize. But maybe it means we allocate less resources and control to the state sector and open up the private sector a little bit more. Maybe it means we think about you know, opening up a degree of, of political pluralization in society so that we can hear better ideas for policies. The other option I have to say, and this is we're, we're in kind of sort of dark, realistic territory, is, is a coup. Again, these Leninist systems don't have the regular pressure release valve of elections. So what we saw in, this, in the Soviet Union is every leader died in office except for Khrushchev, who was purged. China's, you know, the Communist Party is 100 years old. In that 100 years, we have had one instance where a leader has voluntarily and peacefully handed over all the offices of power and that was Xi Jinping's predecessor, Hu Jintao. That, I think, is the territory we're in. A coup now feels unlikely, but this is where I think most of Xi Jinping's anxieties are directed. He knows that when you're in that system, you are exposed to your fellow elite. These would be people in the security services, the military. So I don't think Xi Jinping is worried about keeping the average Joe on the street happy. I'm some account to that. I think most of his day is thinking about how do I keep this coalition together such that I don't have someone drive a knife into my back. And that is, frankly, Xi Jinping is a student of power. He's only known the Communist Party. His father was one of the senior most revolutionary officials who himself was purged during the Cultural Revolution. And Xi Jinping spent years living out in a cave in rural China, is ruthlessly efficient. But what has made him so effective is not his policy acumen. He is a brutal student of power politics. Wow, that's grim. Let's look at where we are exactly right now, which is we're getting into what is becoming a protracted war in Ukraine. And I wanted to remind some of our listeners who might be very young that there was this other time when there was a reaction in China to sort of a, a 
the end of, if you will, of the Soviet Union. There was uh, something that we now think of was Tiananmen Square. There were events that took place in Tiananmen Square. And the Chinese government took a particular reaction to it, which if you've never seen the video, why don't we just describe what happened to the protester who stood in front of the Chinese tanks? What hinked China up back then? And where do you think maybe some of these protesters took their inspiration? How do we fit into that? Yeah, so I mean, this is one of the most consequential pivot moments in modern Chinese history. It begins in April 15th, 1989, with the death of what you would then call a sort of a liberal reformer in the system, a guy named Hu Yaobang, who is a giant of the Chinese political system. As had often been the case in China's system, and again, this is an issue with authoritarian systems, because you don't have the public square for normal political speech, you oftentimes take advantage of anniversaries, deaths, those sorts of events where you can come out and, and, off, and officially you know, mourn someone, but really be making a political statement. So it starts with students and, and workers around Beijing going to Tiananmen Square, which is smack dab in the center of Beijing. What started as a marches to mourn Hu Yaobang ended up growing to be protests around taxes, around workers' rights, around political freedoms. We call this a Beijing phenomenon, but at the height of the protest, this was a nationwide phenomenon. You had protests in cities all across China. We had a heavy media presence there in 1989. And on the evening of June 3rd, early morning of June 4th is when in Beijing, at least in and around Tiananmen Square, but it's throughout the city, the Communist Party made the decision that we've got to essentially clear out the protesters. And that's when they used the Chinese military, but also paramilitary organizations to open fire. We don't know how many were killed. Estimates range from hundreds to thousands. One of the most iconic images of the 20th century comes out of that, though, which is it's video footage. The photograph that we usually see is a still from the video footage. It was taken on a hotel that looks down into Tiananmen Square, and it shows uh, the tanks moving on Chang'an Avenue, which is the avenue of eternal peace, ironically. And a lone protester goes out and stands in front of the tank. And you see the tank try to reposition. Finally, a couple of folks come and grab this guy. Not, not police, sort of friends come and grab this guy out of the way. I think they were worried what's going to happen. But of course, that, that came a, a, a really iconic moment. And remember, all this is happening, by the way, around the time Gorbachev was supposed to go visit Beijing for official state visit. And later that fall, you begin to see the crumbling of the entire Soviet Union. So for Chinese leaders... And if you look at speeches from Chinese leaders, including Deng Xiaoping, they're very much thinking about not just what's happening here in Beijing, but what's happening in the larger communist movement around the world as you're seeing the dissolution of the the Soviet Union. Of course, we talked about the the Berlin Wall. Remember, December 25th, 1989 is is Ceausescu when he is in one of the, you can see this on YouTube, and it's an important moment to watch where he goes out in the, the balcony in front of this massive crowd and up to that moment, he's large and in charge, and then someone starts booing, and then everyone starts booing. And just in a blink of an eye, the facade of power comes down. And within three days, him and his wife, Elena, were, were shot after a, um, I wouldn't call it a trial, but something looking like that. So this was a, a profound moment for China. And I should say that lessons of Soviet collapse is still an issue very much at the, the present of Chinese intellectual discourse. For Xi Jinping, we know this. In some of the secret speeches, which eventually were, were came out, he is fixated on the collapse of the Soviet Union, much like Putin. You can imagine that the lessons they're learning from the collapse of the Soviet Union, again, much like Putin, are, are probably not the right lessons. 
But for Xi Jinping, this is an existential matter. And what both the lesson of Gorbachev and then the collapse of the Soviet Union showed him is don't give an inch. Don't let little problems become big problems. That you always need to maintain the solidity and organizational resilience of the Communist Party. And they lost sight of that. And fight in the realm of ideas, right? Don't allow bourgeois liberal ideas to gain a foothold. In Chinese discourse, they call this historical nihilism. So combating any and everywhere where you're seeing discussion of the Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution, having a, an orthodox view of history because you understand that history is power. And Xi Jinping is just a ruthless a student on that. So I think one of the, you know, tying the thread for uh, extending the thread from 1989 to today, a lot of what informs Xi Jinping's view about how you structure and order society, what is, where is the permissible role for intellectual discourse of, of a heterodox nature? What is the role of the Communist Party? How disciplined, how organized it should be? A lot of that stems from his vision or his you know, mental map of what happened to the Soviet Union and, and to China. And I'll end by saying, I think that's one of the affinity points between him and Vladimir Putin. They have met together. Xi Jinping has met with Vladimir Putin 40 times. And from what we know, they have an extraordinarily tight bond. And I bet one of those strong bonds is their shared view of what a tragedy for them the collapse of the Soviet Union is. And I bet when they're sort of making checklists of what Moscow did right or wrong, I bet they have a very similar checklist. It's very interesting. I want to go back, though, for one second, because we've been so incredibly serious, and it's very difficult for me to be serious for any length of time. But you talked about when you die, you go to see Marx. You know, I'm always interested in their view of Marx, because he actually thought the state would wither away. I really don't see that in China. Well, no, I mean, this is the this is the Marxist critique of of 20th century communism, is that it was the bastardization of true radical Marxism. And one of the ways that you could be a dissident in the Soviet Union and in China is by sort of bringing to the fore enlightened Marxism about what does a true vision of communism look like? And, and this is interestingly though, not, not to bore people with you know, the turgid discourse on Marxism in, in China, but this has been one of the battlefields for a long time has been who controls Orthodox Marxism. And Marxism is still taught in all party academies. And you can imagine when you're reading it that they allied some of the more radical critiques Marx and then subsequent Marxists made of power structures. And they allied also some of the discussions on the bureaucratic nature and, and risks of communist movements, which occurred, you know, early in the Soviet Union, you saw heterodox Soviet intellectuals critiquing sort of bureaucratic communism as a bastardization of Marxism. This is still an interesting area, but I think most established communist powers, whether that's Vietnam, whether that's Cuba, whether that's North Korea, have long since given up on any sort of radical vision of, of Marxism, partly because they know there, there goes your nest egg. Yeah, if you work for the government, there goes your job, right? You're supposed to wither away. It doesn't sort of happen like that. I do think there is something hardwired in us to always perceive that we're fighting over scarce resources. <laughs> yeah, and, and just to say, you know, uh, not to be too cynical, but the least labor-friendly nation-state in the world is arguably China. So <laughs> on, on a lot of different measures, it doesn't live up to workers' paradise. Yeah, although I did find interesting looking at your book, some of their concern about there being acute class differences with the introduction of capitalism. 
And I find that we're at a time in this country right now where I think we're concerned about the divisions between the haves and the have-nots in the United States of America. Regardless of what your personal view is, I think any of these things are at the very least uncomfortable and leave us as human beings concerned about our fellow man and how to enable people and make a more egalitarian society, not in the vision of Marx or anybody else, but with with sort of humanity in mind. So I do think they probably get a little bit of traction when they look at the U.S. media and they see the level of discourse that we're having right now about our class differences. Yeah, for sure, Beijing makes note of divisions in U.S. society and does its best to amplify those through state media. And of course, one of the advantages slash disadvantages China has is there is no analog discussion in China about its own pretty distinct inequities. And in fact, you know, if you look at the Gini coefficient, China is off the scale. So there's an asymmetry here where our open system allows it you know, much easier to see the wounds and the scars and the debates and the divisions. I don't want to make this a partisan comment at all, but if I was just at a skeleton key for frustrating some of China's overt public propaganda, it would be fixing the resiliency of U.S. democracy, including, you know, bringing governance solutions to bear on deep structural systematic problems that the United States is having. The CCP, we know this just in terms of the the propaganda they amplify, love it when the United States looks disorganized, chaotic, and divided. So some amount of that is just necessary messiness of democracies. But I think we have become slightly more divided recently. And, and I think that you know Beijing is thrilled to see that. It may not last. We have a history of going to this low point and then clawing our way back up. One last thing, though, before I let you go, one of the f- things that I found uh, super interesting when I read your book, and this is is not entirely off topic, but you've talked a little bit about the cult of personality. And I think modernly, we see a little of this from what little we can see in North Korea. Can you just give us a quick and final history lesson of sort of the impact on loss of cultural figures? As we, you've just mentioned that the only way things would change would be if she died That seems the most likely scenario which a change could be accomplished. But what happened with the death of Mao and the demise of his cult of personality? Because the concern is that in North Korea, a loss of that kind of leadership would result in a national loss of identity. I think what I learned in the study of the death of Mao is that the death of a dictator is a very complex phenomenon. It is both cathartic for many and also deeply traumatizing and destabilizing for others. Even those, even many who would have seen Mao as a bit of a tyrant, there is a sense of what next, sort of an existential dread about what is the future of the country. And I've interviewed many older Chinese who lived through some of the more chaotic days of the Cultural Revolution who didn't like Mao, who told me that they broke down crying when the radio broadcast came Uh, in September 1976, saying that Mao had died because it's all they knew. He encompassed and embodied the entire sort of identity of China and the nation state. But I think every case is is sui generis. I I think if Xi Jinping died tomorrow, one of the reasons I hesitate to call it a cult of personality, to be a cult, you need cult members. I've never met one Chinese person who thinks of Xi Jinping in the way that people thought of Mao Zedong. Xi Jinping does not inhabit this almost sort of godlike position, you know, as omnipresent, omniscient in Chinese society. He's a better bureaucrat 
And for hardcore nationalists, I think Xi Jinping gets their you know juices flowing, but he is not the figure that Mao was, or frankly, in, in North Korea, uh, that Kim Il Sung, you know, who's the founder, and then his son Kim Jong Il, when they both died, you know, those were were deeply traumatizing. Even if you can look at the the television and see what looked like performative tears, within that you can still be overtaken by waves of anxiety about the future of your country, even as you, you know, may have not had any love lost for the dictator. So what I think is different now, especially in China, is it would be really difficult to replicate the Mao like cult of personality. You know, first of all, Mao was such a unique figure in Chinese history. 1949, Mao comes to power. He was 56 then. You know, really since he was in his mid-teenage years, he had been fighting for the revolution. And Mao turned into a tyrant. But I have to say, if you look at Mao's early years, he was a pretty hardcore guerrilla, um, a tactician, politician. Um, and if you just look at what the Communist Party was fighting for in the 20s and 30s, I have some deep sympathies for it. Inevitably, as is always the case with these systems, they turned violence and, she, and Mao became a tyrant. But that's, that's hard to replicate now. Just with technology, you know, in, international linkages, China was very isolated then, very poor, very backward. And Mao could dominate everything. So I'm less worried about an actual cult of personality. What I do worry about in China is some of the downstream features of a cult of personality that are really just the, the pathologies of power centralization, right? You know, a boss who can't take, you know, won't listen to differing ideas, who uses violence and coercion and therefore is living in an echo chamber, you know, prone to mistakes because they're not exposed to the, you know, sort of open real world. That's what I worry about with Xi Jinping more than I'm going to see Chinese people, you know, holding up their little red books of, of Xi's, you know, thoughts. It will be interesting to see how long he lasts. I mean, he's actually, he was born in what, 1966 or so? He's going to be 60 this June. I should also say he is overweight, doesn't exercise, has a high stress job. Smokes, right? I believe. So socially, but you know, that's not a, that's not a picture of pure health. And so what seems to be the case with dictators is that they live to be 289. So, you know, he's probably not going anywhere for the time being, but it is also a, a, a phenomenon we haven't had to deal with in a while where we've got a linchpin of the global order. China's the second largest economy in the world where we're sort of one heartbeat away from a real question mark. And I, I, just a final point on this. I remember, you know, when, when Reagan was shot here in D.C., Alexander Haig famously got up before the press and said, you know, I'm in charge. I'm in charge, right. Now, he wasn't, right? Because we have a we have a line of succession and 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 the vice president was. But I just raised that to say in the United States, which has a very sort of refined constitutional process for what you do when a leader is dead or incapacitated, and we can still occasionally get it wrong in, in a moment of confusion. China has none of that thick institutional process for leadership succession. It has a very, very slim one in its party charter and in its state charter. And it basically says the central committee will figure it out. He's probably going to live for a while, but if he chokes on a dumpling tomorrow, it would raise some profound uncertainties for not just China, but because of how integrated China is into the global economy for the rest of the world. And remember, they have a growing nuclear stockpile. What the hell happens to that? You know, we've got all these really important questions that would emerge. So in some sense, I'd like Xi Jinping to leave power. On the other side, I'd like him to do it in a very orderly manner. 
It's been really great to have you on tonight. I also wanted to tell you that I enjoyed looking at China's new Red Guards, your book. I know you wrote that in 2019 or so, right? Yep. It looks a little prescient, some of it, and I think it might be interesting to our readers. So we're going to go ahead and link it in the notes to this cast. But thank you so much for joining us, and we'll look forward to talking with you again in the future. Thank you. Enjoyed the conversation. Our guest tonight has been Jude Blanchett of CSIS. He's the author of China's New Red Guards, The Return of Radicalism and the Rebirth of Mao. Thanks for listening tonight. We're really glad that you came, but we're going to ask you to do something, which is share this episode with a friend or a colleague and discuss the issues that we've presented tonight thoughtfully. And if you have feedback for us, please reach out. You can find us on Twitter, at least while Twitter is still up and working. We're at ABA NATSEC, or you can email us directly at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Our editor and my co-producer is Francis Berkham. Our program manager is Rebecca Salido, and my co-producer is Holly McMahon, as well as the incredible members of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, without whom this podcast would not be possible. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.